1: I want to just sort of focus in on energy, just because we are seeing this pretty marked decline in oil prices. And I want to bring in John Kilduff, who's a founding partner of, again, Capital. I mean, there was once upon a time when oil prices would dictate the direction of stocks and bonds uh, in a massive way. Uh, John, do you think that this move lower is sort of the end of this particular blip downward? Or do you think that there is much more downside ahead?
2: I think there's certainly some more downside to come. I think we're going to revisit the, uh, the lows from November at around $42 a barrel. Um, and it's, it's a result of just the, um, the, the, the pent-up buying that came into this market on the back of the uh, OPEC and non-OPEC production accord um, being uh, coming up short and, and, and being given back because the, the deal is proving ineffective. Uh, we're still in heavily oversupplied. Um, with no real relief in sight, and that's what you're seeing here.
0: John, uh, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, all those books and reports about peak oil, I'm never going to get that time back having read them. Should I just throw them out now?
2: Absolutely. And actually, I, w- <laughs> I would be the guy that Bloomberg would have me on to come and refute uh, that uh, that theory at the time. <laughs> so I, I kind of missed those gigs myself. But um, absolutely. And, you know, at the time when I was pushing back against the argument of peak oil, it was— because of technology that I, I figured would come into the oil patch, just as it, as it was coming in, you know, to every other aspect of our lives. You know, cell phones that were you know bigger than your head, you know, right. coming in to, to fit into your shirt pocket. You know, why couldn't some of that technology be transferred and brought to um, not just fracking per se, which was really a reinvented old technology, but seismics.
1: Well, uh, you know, being
2: able to look into the ground, things like that. So that's why we're here.
1: So, John, you were saying that you think that oil is headed to $42 a barrel. Uh, Dave, if oil gets there within the next, say, couple of weeks— what do you expect the reaction to be on the stocks? I mean, we already are seeing a down uh, downturn in the high yield bond market. It's starting to track a little bit more uh, with with oil. But what about what about stocks?
3: Well, arguably more of the same. I mean, you just look at what's going on with the S&P 500 Energy Index as a point of reference. Uh, that peaked back in the middle of December. And since then, it's fallen 14%. So, you know, we've seen sort of the air come out of the balloon to some extent already. and. And if you get, you know, more of the same, well, there's more reason for that particular move to keep going. And, and I just point out on a day like today, it's like pick your company that's out with results and people aren't liking what they're seeing. Uh, two examples, Pioneer Natural Resources, uh, which has fallen 3%. Uh, they're lowering production forecasts, among other things. And Chesapeake Energy, you know, even though they had their first profit in a couple of years, uh, that stock's down uh Close to 7.5%. So, you know, put it all together, and it's not like you're going to get much on the earnings front at this point that's going to to head off uh, more of what we've been seeing lately. Hey, John,
0: uh, just a quick uh, note to you. Wondering about uh, the coverage ratio, you know, the ability of these oil companies to continue to pay dividends. I was looking at uh, Royal Dutch Shell over 7%, uh, ExxonMobil now 3 and 3 quarters of a percent. Uh, Are those the kind of things that people can invest in and expect the dividend, or are they just going to enjoy a wild ride?
2: They're going to enjoy a, a bit of a wild ride. I, I will say there's a, there's two silver linings here for investors. Just broadly within the S and P 500, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. energy sector is is down a lot. It's it's maybe only 18 percent I think these days, right, Dave? And um, as well, the oil companies have really gone through a wrenching reorganization and are a lot more profitable at lower oil prices. So to the extent we do dip down to the levels that, that I see, there will be some short-term hits and the index has already taken a big hit. But to the extent there's any kind of an upturn or industry reaction production-wise, um, the stocks will become good buys because you will see some good earnings, as we are seeing, uh, relative to where prices are.
3: I just point out, looking among the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500, energy is just above 6%. So it's really kind of lost its sway over the stock market. Nonetheless, it's definitely an area that's been hurting the right. S&P 500, one of only two that's down this year, uh, phone companies being the other. And you're only talking about five stocks there.
1: Yeah. Um, tech, I, I'm sure, has really overtaken energy. John, I wanted to get your take on if $42 a barrel would be the new normal for oil prices for a longer period of time, or is that going to be the inflection point at which prices can then rise again? We're
2: going to have to see what the industry reaction is. Uh, when we got down to these these levels or lower than that, um, we saw the, uh, the, rigs, the rig count here in the U.S. in particular really plummet. Since then, since we had a low point uh, about a year or so ago, it's doubled. So, you know, they've come racing back, and they've also hedged a lot of their production. So even if prices fall, they're getting paid $50 a barrel no matter where they go. So we're going to have to see uh, where we're at at that point. Um, it could be an interesting uh, showdown with uh, OPEC and Saudi Arabia, where they decide to flood the market and really break the back of prices again right. and um, and potentially see a, a, a price war. For we got
0: to leave it there. John Kilduff, thanks very much. Founding partner, again, Capital. Our thanks also to Dave Wilson. Bloomberg stocks comments. Go ahead, send him an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net.
1: Right now, however, I want to discuss the ramifications from Puerto Rico's move to file for bankruptcy-like protection. And I want to bring in David Hammer, head of municipal bond portfolio management at Pacific Investment Management Company in New York. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, First, I just want to get your take on what the implications are for the holders of Puerto Rico's $74 billion of debt as a result of this Title III filing.
4: Well, hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, I think that the most important uh, turn of events here is that the period for consensual restructuring between the Oversight Board and the the government of Puerto Rico and creditors appears to be coming to a close. And uh, what looks more likely is that the Oversight Board will begin to use uh, title three uh, of the recently established Permisa bankruptcy code, uh, which allows the oversight board to effectively dictate recovery uh, to creditors. Um, so it opens up a door for uh, it's a potentially lower uh, lower prices on bonds, uh, steeper haircuts than what's implied in the market, uh, and also importantly, you know this is going to take a while. Uh,
1: so- well, well, David, you know, you say, yeah, there's going to be probably steeper, steeper implied prices, uh, steeper declines in prices than we're seeing currently in the market. One thing that we don't hear a lot about is a lot of the holders of these bonds are individual mom and pop investors, uh, particularly in Puerto Rico. And how much will that sort of political angle? Change the dynamic of how much debt will get written down, because people think of like vulture hedge funds and they, you know who cares if they get they get some of the the, the principal written down, but but what about these retail investors?
4: You know, I'd say for starters, we don't think that that true mom-and-pop retail investors still own a lot of this debt. Uh, Puerto Rico was downgraded to sub-investment grade in 2013. Uh, Default's been widely anticipated and expected uh, really for a number of years now. Bond prices have been trading at really steep discounts for a long period of time. So, you know, a lot of risk transfers already occurred. And the primary holders of these bonds now are a few mutual funds and, and primarily hedge funds.
0: David, is there any possibility that this will uh, just be the opening act in other municipal filings such as Illinois? Will they use the same route? Yeah, I don't
4: think so for a couple of reasons. Uh you know the, the 3.8 trillion dollar municipal market is where states and cities and schools and toll roads and airports go for their uh, their financing needs. Puerto Rico is really a distinct case. Uh it's a territory and only territories are eligible uh to use this law premises. So uh, it applies just to territories. And uh, when you talk about uh, other areas in the United States, you know, they've experienced decent growth uh, post-crisis, post-financial crisis, uh, decent population trends. Puerto Rico's economy has been in a recession for about a decade, right. uh, and they're experiencing uh, out-migration. So they're losing people every year.
1: What about the Virgin Islands?
4: Yes, the Virgin Islands is one that, in theory, uh, could use PROMESA in the future. You know, I think it's a very different situation in that they are having fiscal stress, but they're really early in the process. Uh, They haven't done much to cut their budget. Uh, They haven't done anything on pension reform. Uh, Puerto Rico is very different. You know, they've already reformed one of their biggest pensions. Uh, Their average pension uh, is only about $14,000. So uh, while there was a lot of room to cut at one point in Puerto Rico, uh, there isn't any more. So a bit different. From Virgin Islands as well.
1: So, what are you looking at? What do you think is the best opportunity in the $3.8 trillion U.S. municipal bond market?
4: So, we really like uh, a lot of debt at the moment, I'd say, particularly in the low triple B to high double B range. Municipal default rates continue to be really low despite these headlines on Detroit and Jefferson County and now Puerto Rico. Uh, municipal bonds continue to experience low default rates versus corporates. Uh, one thing we look at quite a bit is the uh, the default rate for triple B muni's uh, is currently less. Over the last 10 years, as calculated by Moody's, actually less than double A corporate bonds. So uh, we see a lot of opportunity. The market has been, uh, I think, a bit wary this year due to the backdrop of tax reform. So where we typically see pretty strong inflows into the asset class early in the year, uh, that hasn't been the case this year. We've only seen about $2 billion come to the municipal market uh, compared to about $100 billion in the investment-grade corporate market.
0: David, uh, we're just to let you know, we're waiting for President Donald Trump. He is expected to make remarks as part of the National Day of Prayer event from the Rose Garden at the White House. We'll be bringing those to you uh, when he appears. Uh, if someone were to call you, David, on the phone and say, all right, so what's, we're going to give you the power to figure out – what Puerto Rico should do. Do you have any recommendations what should happen next if you were given that task?
4: Yeah so you know, I think importantly the oversight board that Congress established has already been given that task so that is exactly what they're doing and the uh, you know the first step in the process was to approve a fiscal plan uh, that sets Puerto Rico on a sustainable path going forward, uh, you know, requires burden sharing in terms of further pension cuts. And they assume about a 10 percent reduction in pensions, uh, increasing uh, uh, the budget through uh, reducing expenses and increasing revenues. So uh, enforcing tax collections. And yeah, but all that. Matter. But I
0: mean, that's I, I mean, I'm sorry to break into it, but, you know, all that makes complete sense. But that's doesn't seem to be ruling the day at the moment. And I'm wondering whether there are things that can be enacted. I mean, you know, one of the things that always talked about in terms of Puerto Rico was the triple tax free status that was granted by the federal government, the tax breaks to the pharmaceutical industry. Is there anything that can be tangibly done in the next six months that will help revive the Puerto Rican economy?
4: So I think the oversight board is doing it. You know, where I disagree with you, I think they are taking actions. They are taking steps. Uh, and it's it's deeper haircuts for bondholders. Uh, and then we'd like to see some some pro-growth reforms. So I think one example, there is a COFINA sales tax bond. Uh, and right now, creditors are disputing, is that lien valid or not? Uh, do I have a claim on those sales tax revenues? You know, what we think could be beneficial. The economy is actually reducing the sales tax uh, in Puerto Rico. Uh, it's a regressive tax. It would bring more money into, The economy, you know, it's not the greatest thing for bondholders, but we think that could help get the Puerto Rico economy going.
0: We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens.
1: We have been talking quite a bit about the increasing weakness that we've seen in consumer credit. And uh, one story that was in The Wall Street Journal last night that did catch my attention was that, you know, some big banks have started to pull back uh, pretty pretty sharply from auto loans as a result of the weakening credit quality. And this is sort of adding to the weakness that we're seeing in sales. To, to make sense of this and try to paint this in the broader scheme of credit markets, I want to bring in Matthew Misch. He's Global Credit Strategist at UBS Securities in New York. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with what your take on the latest data at uh, the d- latest results from synchrony, Capital One, the automakers with the deterioration in their sales numbers I mean, do you think that this points to some kind of broader problem that is being underrated in markets today
5: yeah I think there's i think there's um, <clears throat> I think there's, uh, there's two t- two stories the uh, the more optimistic one is that aggregate. Uh, Consumer credit fundamentals look relatively strong. Uh, The backdrop from a macroeconomic perspective is fairly resilient and stable, albeit at a lower base than I think many would like. Um, I think what we've argued, to be clear, is the rise in delinquencies, we think, is uh, certainly an undercovered story, and it's driven by three things. I think the first is you've certainly seen lenders, particularly non-banks, go further down the credit spectrum, to basically meet loan growth hurdles. Um, so you've seen in particular across a lot of different segments, not just consumer uh, or retail, but also commercial credit, you've seen non-banks uh, be much more aggressive in terms of going down the curve and lending to non-prime or subprime borrowers. But I think the second thing, and we use a proprietary survey from UBS Evidence Lab uh, to uncover this this dynamic, I think, in, in detail, um, is we think that the underlying consumer population uh, is pressured by essentially a lack of real wage growth. So when you look at nominal wage growth, it's been certainly positive, uh, but in low to mid single digits and fairly disappointing. But what we find is that expenditures are rising. Uh, if you think about education costs, if you think about health care costs and on balance, there doesn't seem to be a lot of velocity or growth in real incomes. And so you can uh, you can rationalize a world where default rates are rising uh, in the sense that a, lending conditions have gotten too loose, uh, but B, ultimately, we think that credit quality is driven in many cases by uh, the ability and the willingness to pay. And if the ability to pay is constrained by cash flow, uh, which we would say in- income is a good proxy for, uh, then it makes sense to us six or seven years into the cycle, again, when you have started to lend down the curve, uh, that some of that uh, income inequality and essentially a lack of real wage growth is really starting to come through uh, and, uh, and, and, and show some uh, you know, some cracks on the consumer side. So-
1: So, Matt, if you can extrapolate out on the more bearish view on what these numbers mean and sort of uh, give us a sense of what the result would be if this uh, credit weakness in the consumer does continue to increase the pace that we've seen recently, Uh, what, what would be the implications for, say, a credit investor, even an equity investor?
5: Yeah, so I think this cycle, we would argue that central bank policy has been very accommodative. Um, And so some of the traditional measures we look at, um, such as financial condition indicators or uh, lending standards, seem to look fairly benign. Again, I think a lot of that is uh, the liquidity that's been provided by central banks. So one of the things that we believe this cycle um, is that delinquency and default rates may need to be severe uh, and elevated enough to basically to scare out or to push back uh, on all of the liquidity uh, and the investment money uh, that's basically reaching for yield. So I think the story this time may actually end up being default rates and delinquencies need to get high enough that essentially it shocks or scares uh, the investor community, and it basically causes a a pullback in liquidity. Um, So I think that you look for two things from our side, either one, a very severe increase in delinquency or default rates uh, in a specific market, um, such as autos, or two, uh, I think more importantly, a more broad-based increase in delinquency rates um, that, again, would affect lenders uh, such as non-banks and banks uh, on a more widespread scale.
0: Matthew, I want to pick up on something having to do with these non-bank lenders that you say are being pressured to meet their loan growth uh, goals. If non-bank lenders Create the credit and then sell on the loans to other people, they'll be long gone before any of this paper starts to stink. Is that accurate?
5: Probably depends on the type of the loan that you are referencing. So, I think I mean, like they're not going alluding- to hold it
0: on their books, is my point. In other words, we just spoke to uh Mark Stefanski of uh, the of, of the um federal third federal savings and loan they're based in cleveland he said no no when they make the loan let's say for a house they keep the loan on their books but most of these non-bank lenders are they really keeping the loans
5: i think it really depends i mean uh, again i think you know to be clear it depends whether you're talking about a mortgage versus a student versus a credit card or an auto loan um well, well, let's I stick with say-
0: let's stick with auto and credit the revolving credit because those are the two areas that that seem to be at least uh in the crosshairs right now Cons- uh, autos and and credit cards yes
5: yeah, so I believe anywhere from a quarter to let's say uh, a little over a half of loans are securitized um, you know I think the, the the caveat there is not everything is securitized or not everything is basically moved off balance sheet um, I think you know if you take mortgages for example um, you have residual rights in many cases on the servicing side and you also have um, I think risks around certainly if you 're lending uh, aggressively uh, we 've seen with companies um, you know, earlier in the month we 've seen with companies on the mortgage side uh, you know that there 's still reputational or other risks if they 're not essentially underwriting to proper or appropriate standards so I think it's, it's a fair argument to say, well, isn't this just intermediated without any skin in the game? Um, but I would point out that a lot of the non-banks I think you need to keep in mind um, are funded either by wholesale funding uh, or by the banks themselves. Wow. Um, and we've seen this issue with some of the Canadian mortgage companies in the last week, uh, which is... You mean uh, like home capital? Com- yeah. Yeah. If the market confidence right pulls back, that, that funding ultimately is either wholesale, in many cases wholesale-based or it's, it's supported in many cases by banks. now I'm not speaking specifically to a given issuer in Canada, but when we look <laughs> at the non-bank lenders across the U.S. Uh, for many of the consumer loans, you know, the, the backstop essentially is the banks.
1: Well, uh, so let's uh, put aside the Armageddon or sort of systemic crisis type of scenario. Under the current scenario, scenario where we see delinquencies and charge-offs increasing, do you think that the uh, unsecured bonds of, say, Capital One or uh, debt of synchrony or, you know, some of these lenders, do you think that, that the, the risk is adequately priced in right now?
5: I think what you've seen over the last few weeks is it's not, Um, and I think structurally the view that we would have is, again, two things. One is that a lot of the loan growth has occurred in the non-bank sector, and two, to be clear, uh, that those loans tend to be much higher risk. And I think lenders have been lulled into a sense of complacency, uh, i.e., you know, I think they're telling you in the last few weeks, these loans and the loan losses that were expected were much lower than what's being realized. And in an environment, I would say, where we're not in a recession or uh, from our side, not close to a recession, you know, the concern that we have is if it's still a fairly stable or, or, or benign backdrop and I'm you know I would use that term gently but I, I do think that's the case right. and structurally as we look out two to three years if the environment were to deteriorate, I
0: they, think the pressure is going to intensify We got to leave it there Matthew Mish global credit strategist for UBS securities this is Bloomberg.
1: Honored to bring in Ning Tang, Chief Executive Officer and founder of CreditEase, a Chinese lender that is funneling money into the United States from China and seeing really what the Chinese consumer was looking to buy in the U.S. and the big uh, wealthy investor is as well. Ning, thank you so much for joining us. So can you just thank give you. us uh, an overview of CreditEase, which oversees uh, almost fifteen billion dollars and pioneered a peer-to-peer lending model?
6: Yes, and uh, uh, we are a a leading wealth management company uh, in China. We're also in a lending business and uh, we've been around for 11 years. Uh, Now, uh, one of the key things uh, we are doing is to uh, help uh, uh, high-end wealthy uh, Chinese uh, investors uh, deploy their wealth uh, globally. And the U.S. is uh, a great uh, destination. And uh, just uh, this week when uh, I'm here, so our uh, fund of funds team uh, uh, is here evaluating uh, investment opportunities uh, into funds like uh, KKR, uh, Blackstone. And also uh, we have a fintech investment fund team here evaluating uh, investment opportunities into uh, financial technology companies.
1: Well, so this this is really interesting. Are people going into properties or are they steering away from U.S.? property investments?
6: Actually, uh, the demand is huge uh, for alternative assets such as uh, real estate and uh, venture capital, private equity, and also uh, credit solutions, uh, as well as uh, hedge funds. So uh, we are the leader uh, in helping people do that.
0: I wonder if you could just give us a little detail on your partnership agreement with Tishman Spire that's taking place in Beijing. That may highlight some of the areas that you find investors are attracted to.
6: Yeah, so uh, we've been working with uh, Tishman for uh, many years. Uh, investing in their uh, global funds, uh, European funds, as well as uh, China uh, uh, projects. And in the coming three years, uh, together, we're going to do uh, 10 billion uh, R&B, uh, projects, and uh, uh, some in China, uh, some uh, uh, outside of uh, China.
0: Like the springs in Shanghai? Is that
6: one of the... In Shanghai and yep. also in Beijing. Well, uh, so, you know,
1: there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of fear, frankly, over in the U.S. about China and the credit market in China and that people uh, and that is it getting overheated? Are people still able to withdraw their money and bring it and invest uh, globally what do, you, what do you say to some of this? Do you think that the view of China's uh, credit markets and sort of the support from the government is overblown?
6: Um, actually, uh, we see tremendous opportunity as uh, Chinese uh, consumers, uh, micro-entrepreneurs, and uh, small business owners are still uh, hungry for credit uh, help. Chinese people are very entrepreneurial, and the new economy is very vibrant, looking for capital.
1: But so do you find that your wealthy clients have more difficulty funneling their money out of China and into a place like the U.S., given the capital controls that the government's put in place?
6: Uh, We are a leading wealth management company in China, and many of our clients uh, have uh, assets and uh, currencies outside of uh, China uh, already. They are successful entrepreneurs uh, globally, so uh, this is not an issue we have.
0: You're also bringing this model to trade finance, I believe. I wonder if you could expand a little bit about that, because trade shift is one of your businesses that you're partnering with.
6: Yes, uh, TradeShift is a very interesting company. One of the uh, uh, over 10 investments we've done uh, through our FinTech investment fund uh, in the US. And uh, so we are a uh, equity investor uh, in TradeShift. Also, uh, we operationally and strategically uh, work with it as a value-adding partner.
1: Is there any place in the in the world that the Chinese uh, clients that you work with used to be interested in, but no longer
6: are? Not really, because uh, Chinese investors are going global uh, big time.
1: Right, but but as far as reducing their allocation to a certain country in favor of another, I mean, is there a place that is there any shift in the way that the investors that you deal with? are looking to deploy their money?
6: Well, I think the trend is that uh, they now work more and more with professional uh, organizations as opposed to uh, doing things on their own or through their friends. So uh, they used to be not so professional. So I think the trend is uh, moving from not so professional way to professional way.
1: You mean to go towards, for example, a venture capital firm or, or a KKR or Carlyle or one of these? Uh,
6: first of all, is through a uh, wealth management uh, uh, Organizations, experts like,
0: like us. Yes. Your company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange, right? Uh,
6: that's our subsidiary what? company. Okay, it's, this uh, is. It's a, a small business of ours uh, doing uh, P2P uh, marketplace lending. This is YRD. This is uh, year and die. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Okay,
0: I just want to understand this because I, there's a platform that has been launched, right, which is supposed to uh, give the companies an ability to get. Data from you as well as anti-fraud technology, customer acquisition capabilities. Does that mean that you're going to be moving more deeply into advising uh, the people that borrow money?
6: Um, It's actually a a platform uh, uh, working for both borrowers and lenders uh, doing uh, uh, P2P. Uh, 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 online, and it was listed the uh, end of uh, 2015. But as a fintech leader, it has accumulated a lot of data that can uh, work for uh, other uh, players uh, in China for anti-fraud and so on. So it's kind of a value-adding service we offer to the whole industry.
1: Well, and it seems like from my research on peer-to-peer lending in China, there is a much bigger groundswell of support for this particular form of finance than in the U.S. where some of the peer-to-peer lenders are, are less peer-to-peer and more kind of financed by bigger institutions, uh, and then they can make micro-loans. I mean, what do you think the future of, of, of the so-called peer-to-peer in the U.S. really is at this
6: point? Yeah. And actually, uh, marketplace uh, lending has been around for over 10 years. We invented that model in China, and the leading companies like uh, uh, Lending Club and so on have done uh, yeah uh, uh, well in the U.S., and recently, we we invested, invested in a company called Upgrade uh, that's uh, uh, founded by a Lending Club uh, founder and ex-CEO, Renaud. So uh, we are uh, uh, great to be uh, his uh, investor. So
1: you weren't scared off by the whole kerfluffle with uh, Lending Club uh, a couple years ago?
6: I believe uh, the model is robust and, uh, and the industry will be uh, for the long haul. The
0: uh, robo-advisor uh, topic is, is certainly Uh, something that U.S. investors have been grappling with. Do you have robo-advisors in China, and are they going to expand?
6: Yes, and uh, uh, so our wealth management business, uh, while uh, covering uh, high net worth, uh, ultra high net worth individuals, the Merrill Lynch and the UBS way, we also uh, serve uh, middle class, uh, uh, mass affluent investors, but uh, we do that uh, through utilizing technology through robo-advisor. So we have a leading robo-advisory service in China so people can get uh, uh, their own customized solution through mobile phone.
1: So based on your wealthy clients, you were saying that your view is that the economy is going well in China. Are they at all concerned about some of the uh, issues that people are talking about with respect to the slowing Chinese economy and whether or not, the, uh, uh, whether or not it can head for a soft landing? Yeah,
6: that's very interesting uh, phenomena. We see that uh, you know, many of our investors are successful entrepreneurs from the old economy. So they are in manufacturing, in trading, so on, but they realize that the new economy is coming, so they like to embrace the new economy. How to do that through fund of funds investment? So, when you say the new economy, you're talking services, right? Uh, and also like a uh, uh, cloud computing, for example, like internet plus, like uh, you know, mobile internet, uh, so on. All like enabling the old economy to do better.
0: So- the uh, regulations that exist in China over peer-to-peer lending, uh, they've claimed a couple of victims, like, for example, homefax, uh It's no more. Is there a a regulatory regime that uh, ensures the stability and the safety of the system for investors?
6: Yeah. And actually talking about uh, fintech innovation, two sectors have become relatively more mature, uh, namely uh, marketplace lending and payment. They are like a trillion dollar in size. And also uh, there are regulatory regimes uh, for them. But other sectors are still up and coming, like robot advisor like crowdfunding, so on.
0: All right. I want to thank you very much for coming in and sharing all this with us. Uh, Ning Tang is the chief executive and the founder of CreditEase.
6: Thank you very much for
0: being with us.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.